First Corinthians chapter one, verse ten. Follow me. I tell you what we'll do tonight. I'm going to read the uh, even number verse, and you read the odd number verse. When we get to verse seventeen, we'll read it together. Okay? We'll read it. Read it that way. So I'll read verse ten, then you read verse eleven, and so forth. All right. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Congregation, all together. For it <clears throat> now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Congregation. I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus, besides I know not whether I baptized any other. Altogether, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Father, tonight as we look at this subject, and it's a recurring theme in the book of 1 Corinthians, I pray that we enter this service and uh, consider this body of Christ as being very precious. As a congregation, a body that you love very much. And that, Lord, we realize that as much as we like to claim ownership in the church and saying things like, this is my church, at the same time, the full recognition is this is your church, the church you died for and shed your blood for. And we realize that no matter who we are in this congregation, that there's enough carnality and flesh in us that there can be division and schisms and dissensions and things of that nature. And Lord, what a sad thing when a church is not united, when brethren are divided, when there's differences of opinions that cannot be reconciled, or worse yet, Lord, the fact is we disagree with right doctrine and rather would pursue preferences over what is right. And I pray this evening that uh, more than anything else, as I prayed earlier today, I pray that when we leave tonight, I pray our hearts would be filled with the love of God. I pray that, Lord, you touch our hearts about loving you and loving your people and loving the work of God here and realizing we have a vested interest in a ministry here that, Lord, was born of God. Father, we pray tonight for enablement and understanding, and I pray that God perhaps would give us understanding about what happened here and would just help us in every facet of our life. I pray that you'd help my brothers and sisters here tonight who perhaps are struggling in some area of their life, maybe struggling at work or struggling at home or whatever it may be, and just maybe the basic principles we'll be looking at tonight. And though we perhaps have preached on it and looked at it before, realize that, Lord, this is a critical chapter that we need to look at very carefully and in the ensuing weeks, some of the things to follow. Father, help us not to intellectualize what we read. At the same time, help us not to over-spiritualize what we read. And help us, Lord, to be biblical. And God, help us to be mature and understanding. Help us to grow in the faith, build up our hearts. And perhaps whatever we, we have not done between Sunday leading up to tonight, we pray that, Lord, we would just, right at this middle of the week, would just get recalibrated and recharged and refired in our hearts. Thank you for this congregation. Thank you for people, Lord, who are here on Wednesday night. And as fathers are coming, we just pray this will be a great service in which you speak to our hearts. And we'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Two weeks ago, we were in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 9. And in the first nine verses, Paul started off very, very, uh, with a very strong encouragement. I call your attention to verses 5 and 6. <clears throat> where Paul talks about that he speaks about this church being a very rich church. He says that in everything you are enriched by him. And he wanted them to understand their position in Jesus Christ. And that's a, that's a phrase I'm going to probably use a couple times tonight, our position in Jesus Christ, because it's very important for us to comprehend and grasp our position in Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul spoke here to a, a church congregation that he said was very enriched by him. And I can imagine so, because you know Paul spent about 18 months with them, and, and I, I really think Paul's motto in terms of 
how he ministered to churches is one that I probably need to learn a lot from because there was a lot of intensity in terms of what he did. Every time I read through the books of First and Second Thessalonians and I read through First and Second Corinthians, I'm amazed at the amount of content and the amount of maturity and the amount of Bible that he gave to those people during that time, especially considering that the Word of God was just uh, unfolding at that time. They did not have all the completed revelation of the Word of God at that time. So it's amazing how the Holy Spirit used him in that capacity, and I still believe the Holy Spirit can do the same thing with us. But he spoke to church here that he said, you are enriched in all things, in all utterance, in all, in, in all knowledge. We get down here, and as we, we notice this, he's, he's finished the first nine verses. He's encouraged them. He's commended them. Uh, he's, he's encouraged them about the fact that God is faithful. He kind of turns his direction towards why this letter was written, because the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians were addressing uh, issues and problems that the household of Chloe brought a physical report to him about. And they traveled to Ephesus to tell him that. And when he was at Ephesus, you can imagine Apostle Paul, he had not been gone very long from Corinth. And uh, just thinking about, man, they, they, how did this all happen? And so he addresses these things. And you'll notice that he uses certain words here in verses 10, 11, and 12. Notice in verse 10, he speaks about divisions. Uh, you'll notice here he speaks about <clears throat> being joined together and the same mind. And in verse 11, he uses a very strong word, just as he does in verse 10. He talks about contentions. And then he makes a statement that was kind of mind-boggling. If, if, you, if you look it up in the original Greek, he says, is Christ divided? And uh, literally, is Christ broken up in pieces, going in different directions? And, you know, as he's dressed it, they knew exactly what he's talking about because he references right at the beginning because he had the permission of the household of Chloe to use their name that they were having some spiritual issues that were going on there. And so we go in verse 5 from a church that, has, that is rich. Notice if you went verses 10 to 17, a church that has rifts. This church had rifts. This church had schisms. This church had divisions. This church had contentions. This church had some serious, serious issues. And so the title of this, this evening's message is found right out of verse 13. Is Christ divided? And I want us to see this evening Paul's uh, analysis of a church that was going through some very serious situations that was hurting it. And we want to see tonight that uh, some things that perhaps are preventative for us that we, to prevent our church from going down that same pathway. Notice, first of all, in verses 9 and 10, we see a, a church congregation, a church congregation. And I know I said some things about this last time, but I want us to look a little bit further about this as we see a church congregation. Now, you'll notice here, I want to give you some definitions, and we'll see what are two components of a church congregation. You notice here that a, a church congregation is a local assembly of saved baptized members. That's a church congregation, a local assembly of saved, baptized members. And we saw some things about that in the first message. As a church congregation, we are bound together by the salvation decisions of our members and baptism by immersion. And I want to underscore baptism by immersion because as you look at the subject of baptism, baptism, notice in verses 14 and 15 and in 16, actually became a contentious matter. Actually, if you study this a little bit, and we'll look at, we'll look at, see this in 1 Corinthians 12, we must not undermine the doctrine of baptism. Baptism is very critical, important as far as we're concerned as Baptists here and as far as church membership. Um, church members, a church, a congregation, is bound by doctrine, is bound by direction, and is bound by duty, and bound by devotion. We indicate our agreement in all these things by, as a church congregation, by signing off on a covenant. Those of you who are here at our church business meeting, remember that at the end of the business meeting, we certainly gave out to our members a church covenant we asked you to sign off on. And if you have it still in your Bible and have it signed off, hope you'll sign it and return it. But a church covenant basically means it affirms in your heart, as well as to the church, that you're in agreement with the doctrines of the church. You're in agreement with the principles and philosophy of the church. And if you should leave this church, perhaps because you're being relocated to another area, that you would find a church of like similar practices and like similar beliefs and so forth. Like that. But those are important things. And we see that tonight because Paul is writing to a local church congregation. Now, a congregation, I want you to notice in verse 9, first of all, a church congregation is a fellowship. It is a fellowship. It is a local fellowship. It is a sweet fellowship. By the way, it's the Lord's fellowship. Amen? It's a fellowship there. And Paul said this in verse 9. God is faithful. You'll notice he has a comma there. God is faithful. And he's talking to us about this 
attribute of God is faithfulness, but he refers it here in relation to a church congregation. God is faithful by whom you are called unto, notice this, the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I don't have time to compare this with 1 John 1. A lot of similarities with this in 1 John 1. We saw fellowship. Now, the word fellowship, for those of you familiar with the word, is a word called, the Greek word koinonia. Uh, there's some church fellowships that like to use, they use the word koinonia to call themselves. I don't have a problem with that, it's fine. But koinonia is a, is, was a very warm word that was used in the Greek uh, back in the day. It was a very warm word. It was a very sweet word. It had a good connotation to it. Uh, where we find the word koinonia used in the Greek, we find the word communion. Uh, we find the word partaker. We find that it's used in terms of referring to community. It has the idea of sharing. It has the idea of participation together. It's interesting that the word communion or fellowship is used also in reference to uh, the taking up of offerings in Philippians chapter 4 that they took up for the mysteries there. So the word koinonia is, is, is a very good word. It speaks about fellowship. It is two-dimensional in nature. Notice verse 9 again. It's two-dimensional. Dimension number one, is it's vertical in its dimension. It's speaking about our fellowship with the Lord. You see what binds us together in our fellowship fellowship is the fact that we're saved and we're baptized and we're members of a local New Testament church. And so through that, we have this fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the things that should be an incentive to us and encouraged to us in terms of our walk with God is that we should have sweet fellowship with the Lord. Sweet fellowship with the Lord is indicative of the fact that there can be sweet fellowship uh, exuding throughout the church there. And so it's two dimensions. It's vertical with our Lord and then it's horizontal with each other. Look at verse 9 again. We are called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's vertical, but it's horizontal. We have fellowship with our Lord. We have fellowship with one another. Now, if you had a sweet time of devotion this morning and in the Bible and the Word of God, I would anticipate that this evening that you're just all, you're all pumped up and you're excited to be in church and you're pumped up and you're excited to serve the Lord. Now, if you didn't have your devotion and you're kind of just kind of crosswise and Mr. Grumpy or Mrs. Grumpy today, then I want to encourage you to let this message tonight be your devotion. Amen? And so that you're not grumpy when you leave and that you leave tonight excited and enthused in Jesus Christ. So we see a church congregation as a fellowship, but notice verse 10 is something else here. In verse 10, Paul uses a word in verse 10, 11, he uses one word to describe the church congregation also as a family. Now we're not just a fellowship but we're a church family. Now let me say this tonight. I'm thankful every now and then I'll visit some churches or preach in a church that, I, that I've come to know some of the members and I enjoy being there. I think, of, I think of my good friend, Brother Tim Gibson. He's a small church there outside there, outside of Columbia, Missouri. And I hope one day to bring Brother Gibson out. He's just a sweet guy and just a loving guy. He's in a city of 2,000 people, believe it or not, and uh, in, a, in, a, in a little country church, Brother Rob. And uh, you know, they, it, snow winning there would be tough because uh, the houses are probably a half a mile away from each other other. So you'd have to do a lot of walking there, amen? And so you have to have a Ford pickup to get from one destination to the other, uh, to get over there. That's okay with me, amen? And to go so many and knock on people, and uh, knock on people's doors, and you go there, and everybody's got a shotgun in their home. I love that, amen? And you just go over there, and uh, you know, I just follow Brother Gibson. We're both in our ties going out so winning, and he'll come out there and say, hey, Brother Jethro, how you doing there, you know, and something like that. And they're just talking out there and just having a good time. But in that, that city location, he's running about 200 people in his church, amen? That's a blessing, 10% of the community there. And he's got, a, he's got in Mobley, the city of Mobley, just a little bit down further from about 15 minutes away. They've got a ministry started down there, and he's reaching some students at the local community college, and uh, he's reaching the basketball teams, the men and ladies basketball teams, just doing a great work there. And I, and, I, and I enjoy those people there, and I know a lot of them by their first name, and that's not the only church. I mean, I think of Brother Lorena's church over in the Philippines. Uh, we know several of their members and leaders by first name, places like that. But I want to tell you what, I enjoy their fellowship, but they're not my family. This is my family, amen? Your church is your family. When you join the church, you're making, a, you're making an incredible statement to the rest of the church family. You are saying, when you join the church, that you've, you've, you, that you've, made, the, you've made the decision, this is not only your place of fellowship, but this is also your family. Now, family is a very interesting thing, okay? Uh, family, when we, when we look at this, he uses a word here. Notice that you went in verse 10 11. He uses the word brethren. Now, I beseech you, brethren, for it's been declared unto me of you, my brethren. Now, the word brethren is the Greek word adelphos. Now, I don't have time to get into that word, but you ought to look it up later when you have time, the word adelphos. Adelphos is a term of affection. It literally means this, there is a relation by blood. 
Now, it's not relation by physical blood, but thank God it's relation by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? That, that crimson line of his blood draws us together. It has the idea of the same parentage. Thank God that God is our father. But as a family, there is a uniqueness about our family. Now, okay, as a, there, there are a lot of families made up in this, this room here. And there's just a uniqueness about the DNA of your family that, that is unique to you. There's uniqueness about the DNA of my family that's unique to me. I mean, we just have our own families. But when we come to church, we're all one family, amen? We can call each other brethren, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ here. And it's a, there's this relationship we have there. And he starts off by talking about this church congregation being a fellowship and a family. I read the story about a little girl who got scared at night. She got scared of the dark. And she started crying and, and moaning in the dark. And finally, she, she got up and she went to her mother was... Uh, was sleeping by herself. Her husband it was away on a business trip. And uh, she said, Mommy, Mommy, I'm scared of the dark. And she said, Well, honey, why don't you come in bed? Daddy's away on business. You can come sleep in the bed with me. And something they didn't do, but the girl was very, very scared and she was crying. And she said, Well, what's the matter? She said, Mommy, it's very dark out there. And she said, I'm scared. And she said, Well, honey, it's dark in here as well there too. Aren't you scared here? She said, No, Mommy, it may be dark in here, but you're here. And I can say this tonight. You know, when we're out in the world, and we're dealing with problems and difficulties. It can be dark out there. And when you're going through struggles and trials, it can be very dark out there. And when you're at home by yourself and you're struggling with the trial and you wake up in the morning and you just feel like you're all by yourself, when you come to church, you just know that others are there that care about you and others are there that you can share that time with. And thank God we can come to church just knowing that even though our flesh may say, I don't feel like I really want to come, we can come to church knowing there's encouragement, there's blessing, there's the family of God. Let me say this tonight. I, don't, I, I think I probably, I, I have to go Go back and look at the messages, but I, I, I would dare to say it's probably at least one week goes. There's probably every week, and for the last ten years, I've made once I made the same statement. Whenever you're going through a trial, whenever you're going through difficulties and heaviness, don't leave the church. I mean, I say this so often there, and yet. Yet, I, it's, just, it's, it's amazing to me how many people are just going through struggles and difficulties, and, and just several this week I've been, been, been helping, that just feel like, I don't feel like I come, can come back to church. I don't feel like I should come to church. I don't feel like I should be there. And my first question is, well, where are you going to go if you're not here? Why is it that you feel that way? And you know, the devil has this insidious way of planting a thought in our minds that the, the last place I want to come to, or the worst place to come to, when I'm going through time, the difficulty is the church. Let me tell you tonight, that's a thought from the devil. That's not a thought from God. God wants you in church. God wants you with his people. God wants you to fellowship with the saints. God wants you with the family. I think about the fact when a family member is not doing very well, they need to come home. And the same thing with us. When, when something may not be going right, maybe we can't share with everybody what's going on, but we need to come home. We need to come home to our home church. And I remind you tonight, it may be dark out there, but somebody's here that cares. And somebody's here that wants to pray with you. And somebody's here that wants to come around you. So number one, we see a congregation. But notice verse 11, we see a second thing. In verse, verse 11, we see a complaint. Paul is down at Ephesus. <clears throat> he's trying to get the work going down there. And while he's there, the household of Chloe, which I'm not sure who that could have been. I don't know if it's just her siblings I don't know if it's her and her kids. I don't know if it's her and her husband. But the fact that Paul said a household leads me to believe it could have been the whole family. This family loved their church. This family was ingrained in their church. This family was watching their church fall apart. Spiritually. This family had watched as will unfold throughout the first several chapters, they saw this church was having some major, major spiritual issues. And they made the journey, if you, have to, if you can get this now, they went from the island of Greece and the isthmus where Corinth was at, and they either got on a ship to go across the water to Ephesus, or they made the same travel Paul did, they went up northwards and then eastward, going southward, southeast, to make their way to Ephesus. And whatever they did, they made a long journey. It was a costly journey. Someone had to leave their job for a period of time. And somebody had to take some time. And what they shared with Paul was not something they unloaded that overnight. I think they spent some days and maybe some weeks with Paul. And notice verse 11, Paul, in a very loving way, because the way he weaves this in verse 10, 11, he's not dropping a bomb 
with the, with the temp, temper issue and with the temper attitude. He's not speaking to them in anger, though there is some firmness in what he says. But he's t- declaring to them as a father, and by the way, that's how Paul addresses them. We find that later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He addresses them as a spiritual father. And he comes to them and he says, For it's been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the household of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now I want to say a few things, a couple things here before I talk about what's he, what this complaint here. First of all, I want to commend Chloe and her family that they went, they, they, were, they were concerned enough to go see Paul about this matter. I want to commend them that they didn't do, like perhaps like some of us, well, Pastor, I want to let you know about the situation, but please don't mention my name, or please don't let anybody know that I said this. Let's keep this to ourselves. And we understand that. I mean, I think a lot of us these days, a lot of us, in, you know, just in the realm we live in, we live in a world of privacy and confidentiality, things of that nature, and I understand people's concerns. It's not their, maybe in some cases they're not afraid of their name being mentioned, but they don't want to be offensive to somebody else or pushing somebody away, and so they say something. Chloe and her family were so concerned, they said, Paul, we want you to use our name. We want you to cite us as a reference. We want the rest of church family know that we were so burdened about this we wanted you to know about this so i'm thankful that she gave a first-hand report she gave a factual report it wasn't something engendered by by gossip she was concerned about how the strife called deterioration in the fellowship secondly i think we want to notice something here as we look at paul how he deals with this and he deals with it through the book of first corinthians we have to understand something that this was a constant recurring spiritual issue that all of the apostles and writers of the new testament had to deal with Peter had to deal with it, James had to deal with it, John had in some sense had to deal with it, and Paul had to deal with it in not more than one church here. This was a recurring problem. He had to deal, notice in verse 11, with the problem of contentions and strife and divisions in the church. We'll get more into the definition of that in a minute here. Now I want to say a couple things about this complaint. Because Paul is dealing with contentions. There was, there was a rift among the believers. The idea of contentions is that there was strife, we see the word variance is used in Galatians chapter 5. There was debating, there was contentions, there was hostility. Now they were not contending for the faith, they were contending against the family members there at the church. Let me say a couple things about that. Number one, when we, when we look at the matter of contentions among believers, it's ungodly. Contentions among believers is ungodly. Go with me back to the Old Testament, then we'll look at the New Testament. Notice Proverbs chapter 6 as a reminder. Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19. These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look. And by the way, wherever we see contentions, it's always associated with pride. Only by pride cometh contention. But he said here in verse 17 of Proverbs 6, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. That's contention. Proverbs 17, 14. The beginning of strife is as when one letteth out water, therefore leave off contentions. When we look at this, when we look at uh, maybe a place like 1 Timothy chapter 6, we, we, we looked at a few weeks ago, 1 Timothy 6 addresses the issue of being contentious. We find here that it's, it's an ungodly attitude. But secondly, there's a second thing. Not only are contentions ungodly, contentions are ungainful. They're unprofitable to everybody in the process. Whenever there's contentions, nobody benefits. Nobody wins. It does not help the church. Look at Proverbs 16, 18. A, prior, a forward man soweth strife, and a whisper separateth chief friends. Contentions break up friendships. Contentions break up fellowship. Contentions cause rifts. Contentions lead to people not speaking with each other. Keep your finger there. Go with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Would you go there, please? Here's what Paul had to say to a couple of uh, sisters in Christ who were having contentions. He said in Philippians 4.2, I beseech, same idea he's using with the church at Corinth, I beseech, I beg you, I implore you, I appeal to you, I beseech you odious and beseech Syntyche. He went to them individually, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now you get a little bit further in the word study there. One of the problems that, that affected the whole spirit of the church at Philippi was the rift between Euodius and Syntyche. And Paul's saying here that, that contentions lead to strife and they separate chief friends. Look at Proverbs 17.1. 
Better is a dry morsel and quietness therewith than a house full of sacrifices with strife. What, a, what an interesting analogy that Paul uses there. And then James 3.16, he says, For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every, every, and every evil work. That's kind of interesting thought for us there tonight. Where there's contentions, where there's envy, there's strife, there's always confusion, there's every evil work. Why, there's, why is there confusion? Well, people are, are choosing parties. People are choosing sides. And, and because of that, there's confusion. What do I believe? What's the right thing to believe there? And there's every evil work. And never leads to anything that's good there. So number one, we see the congregation. Number two, we see the complaint. Number three, and we'll spend a little time on this. Would you notice the cause? What was the cause behind these contentions and rifts and strife? And we're going to see three things tonight about the cause. Because we want to put our finger on it. Number one, we find in verse 12... Cause number one was personalities. Now we know in a church, there are strong personalities, there are easygoing personalities, and there are very weak personalities. The weak personalities kind of just, you might say, they're just not just followers, but they're the ones who can be pushed around or per easily persuaded. The strong personalities are the ones who are very persuasive, and the very ones very strong about what they hold on to. Now notice he says in verse 12, now this I say, and would you notice this phrase? Every one of you saith, this is how carnal the church at Corinth was. Every one of them. I mean, every one of the believers there. Chloe went down there, and I can imagine Paul even in tears, asking questions like, well, what about this person? And what about this family? And what about this man? And what about this teacher? And he said, after he, after he did his assessment, and asked all the questions. He said, now this I say, every one of you, the whole church was guilty of following personalities. That's a problem. Amen. Amen. It's a problem. Every one of you saith, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and even some said, I am of Christ. Now I want you to see something here. What you see there at the church at Corinth, we see four different camps within the church at Corinth. Now, we use the term, especially in Baptist circles, we use the term camps to describe divisions. Or if you would, uh, groups that follow a certain modus there, okay? And I, I'm going to try to be careful tonight not to, not to um, use the name of a camp that we might use in our discussions tonight. I've got to be very careful that the, the, the staff guys know what I'm talking about here. I've got to be careful how I use that because I don't want you guys thinking, okay, then I shouldn't be going over there and stuff like that. And uh, that's just the way Baptists are. Baptists are known for having different kinds of camps here, okay? A camp mindset. Now I want you to see these four camps that were within the church of Corinth. Notice camp number one. This was the camp of Paul. Now, Paul did not start that, and that's why he put his name first, because he wanted to make sure people knew he did not start that, and it should not be instigated that Paul had anything to do with this. But the camp of Paul, the camp of Paul, he said some of them are saying, I'm of Paul, were perhaps Gentiles, because Paul was winning the Gentiles to Christ. Now, he was a Jew, but the Gentiles liked him. He was the man that was getting them saved, and, and they're getting the gospel to him, and most likely, these were Gentile believers who perhaps, as we read through 1 Corinthians, these were Gentile believers that were overemphasizing Christian liberty. Now be there when we talk a little bit about Christian liberty. Christian liberty is a good thing, okay? But Christian liberty taken to an excess is what Paul later speaks about. It turns the grace of God into lascivious behavior there. And so this group here would be called the hyper-grace camp. We would call them today the hyper-grace camp. And I'm, I'm really tempted to mention some, drop some names. So you, if you're on vacation, you don't wind up going to their churches because they're hyper-grace in their, what they're doing. They're very, they're, very, uh, they're very out there in terms of their, their exercise of Christian liberty there, okay? They're not where we are at in terms of what we believe the Bible says. Again, I'm not going to say it because there might be one or two here. You're kind of reading that kind of stuff or following them on, on social media there. You might think, well, that's okay there. But I would call this group the hyper Hyper grace camp, and they basically hyper grace basically meaning they take they, they they take the grace of God into excess and believe that the grace of God gives them a license to do things we would otherwise call sin. There, so there was the camp of Paul. There was the camp of Apollos. 
Now, these were the super intellectuals in the church, okay? Apollos came from Alexandria, Egypt. Now, you just have to remember for the most part, most literature that came out of Alexandria was bad stuff, okay? Some of the, the corrupt Bibles came out of Alexandria. That's why some of you who are really not sure about the King James, you need to understand the Alexandria manuscripts that came out there. It was a corrupt manuscript. Now, Alexandria had a lot of, a lot of mystics, and Alexandria, Egypt, was, the, was one of the intellectual capitals of the world. Now, Apollos was a, very, was a very interesting individual. He was an intellectual, but he was on fire for God. And I can go for that, amen? I'm all for having knowledge, but I like having a lot of knowledge with zeal. By the same token, I'm a little concerned about some of us who have zeal, but no knowledge behind that, amen? you got to have good balance behind the two. And uh, Apollos was a man who you might say uh, was, a, was a very intellectual people. The Bible says uh, in Acts chapter 18 that he was a very powerful preacher of the word of God. He knew what he was doing. But he was humble enough to let Achille and Priscilla take him aside and help him understand that he hadn't gone all the way. And he needed some nurturing and he needed some training. And thank God Paul had discipled them enough they could take Apollos aside. And thank God he was humble enough in the word of God that he could be learned. By the way, some of us who know the Bible, we need to be humble every now and then. Somebody might have something just to tell tell us that, that perhaps is not as well trained, but, uh, but perhaps can be very helpful to us along the way there. And Apollos, if you would, some of them, they liked his powerful preaching. They liked his intellectual capability. He was a very intellectual and powerful. Now, this group here, I would call them the hyper-intellectual camp. They would be called the hyper-intellectual camp. So we have the hyper-grace camp. We have the hyper-intellectual camp. Then we have a third camp. And this, uh, this third camp was the camp of Cephas. Notice this, I'm of Paul. I'm Apollos, and I'm a Cephas. Now, who is Cephas? Cephas was, was, was Peter. Basically, that was, a, that was the Aramaic name for Peter there, okay? And um, Peter, if you would, attracted a strong Jewish audience. Now, it's kind of interesting about Peter. Peter was the one that God used to bring the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Remember that? He went to that, the household there in the, in the, of the centurion there, and the gospel went to them, and it's kind of interesting. But we read later on in Galatians chapter 2 that Peter actually went backwards. He actually backslid and went fellowship with the Gentile believers there. Now, there were Jewish believers, a large Jewish audience, who held very strongly to legalism and fast adherence to the law. And they just kind of felt like you need to add the law to grace and you need to, you need to keep the Jewish ceremonies in addition to believing on Jesus Christ. You had to do that to keep saved. And so the, this group here, the camp of Cephas, were very steadfast on standards. Now, I'm for standards, amen? Standards are a good thing. That's a, that's a blessing. But there was another group of people before even the church started that was very strict on standards. They were called the Pharisees. They were the original legalists. Now let me say this about standards, okay? And say this about the Pharisees. These were people that believed in rules. I'm for rules. But they believed in rules without relationships. The same could be said in terms of child discipline and child correction upbringing. That you could be on one end very strong about the relationship, but you have no rules. You have to have rules. You have to have boundary lines. You've got to know where to draw the line in the sand. That's in every facet of life, especially in raising children. They've got to know where the rules are, okay? Now, the Pharisees, they had an abundance of rules, but they didn't believe in relationships. They had no relationship. Now, watch this. This group here that followed Cephas, I would call them the hyper-separatist camp. That's why I have to be very careful. I don't start mentioning names here, okay, about different camps and fundamentalism. So you have the hyper-grace camp, which on one end, I would probably call them the group that was basically uh, a little, we would say very progressive in their theology because they, they would probably interpret the grace of God, giving them license to do things that we would not do, but they would be the hyper-grace camp. We have the, uh, the, the, the camp of, um, of Apollos, who we'd call the hyper-intellectual camp, and then we'd have the camp of Cephas, which I'd call the hyper-separatist camp. Now, the hyper-separatist camp, they'd probably look at Heritage Baptist Church and separate from us, okay? They were so separated, they separated from everybody. In fact, they got to the place where basically they really weren't separatists, they were isolationists. They isolated themselves from everybody there, okay? So we see these third three camps. But then there's a fourth camp. Now, can you believe there's a fourth camp? And can you believe in the church at Corinth, there were those who said, I'm of Paul, hyper-grace. There's a group that said, I'm of Apollos, hyper-intellectual. There was a group that said that, by the way, this is no commentary. I just got this from studying and spending some time in prayer with God. And then there was a group there that, that said they were of Cephas and that, that I would call them the hyper-separatist camp. And then, then there's this hyper-spiritual camp. 
They're above everybody else, amen? You know, I mean, their nose is so far up in the air, even they were above Jesus, amen? And they said, I'm of a Christ. I mean, can you imagine this church had so many contentions? He says, every one of you has chosen a camp that they're part of. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. And basically, a camp mindset, when you get down to the bottom line, a camp mindset is following a personality, not following Jesus Christ. I mean, can you imagine the carnality? I'm of Christ. And that group there basically said, well, you guys are all messed up. I'm following Jesus. What does that mean? And when you think about a camp mindset, a camp mindset follows a strong personality and it exalts its distinctive over other people. Now, when our distinctive is not the Bible, our distinctive is wrong. And when our distinctive is not promoting peace among the brethren, we have to re-examine what that distinctive is. Now let me tell you why we get a camp mindset. Let me tell you why there's contention in the camp mindset in fundamentalism, but even within our specific churches. Let me give you some reasons why. Would you write this down? Number one, because of inadequate and immature grounding in the Word of God. Inadequate and immature grounding in the Word of God. Okay, that's number one. Number two, this is probably the biggest reason why we have a camp mindset. We have a camp mindset because of insecurity regarding one's position in Jesus Christ. That's why they had this camp mindset in the church. That's why Paul started out, he says, he commends them. He says, you are enriched in everything, in all utterance and so forth there. He's talking about their riches in Jesus Christ. But now we see this, this same set of believers, these insecurities, that because of all these rifts and division, one group is saying, I'm part of Paul. Another group says, I'm part of Cephas. Another group says, I'm part of Apollos. And the other one says, well, I don't care about the rest of you guys. I'm with Jesus, and wherever Jesus is, I'm going to be there. I mean, basically have this mindset there. But there's a third reason. There was inadequate immature grounding in the scriptures. There was insecurity regarding one's position in Jesus Christ. But notice if you were the third reason, and we find this, we'll get more into it in, verse three, in chapter 3. Go to chapter 3 for a minute. In verse 3, 1 Corinthians 3, 3, it says, For you are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying, strife, and divisions, are you not carnal, walk as men? Okay, well, the, the, the real problem that we had in the church at Corinth, when you get down to get below, beneath the surface, there was envies and jealousies. Now, look up here for a minute. I want to tell you something tonight. One of the biggest things every Christian struggles with is envy and jealousy. Every one of us in this room has the same capacity or capability of a Saul in eyeing a David. And here are the things we do, okay? We don't like how somebody says something. We don't, we don't, we don't, uh, uh, we, may, we, may, we may take offense to how they say something, and it may be right, but we take offense to that. Uh, we may not like where they went to school. Or where they gra- I mean, I'm just going to tell you tonight, I'm just saying this in our church. We need to be very careful that we don't create a distinctive about Bible colleges. Because a lot of our rifts in fundamentalism are really not between churches. They're about Bible colleges. They're about camps within Bible colleges. And I've been around this long, and I've been around, watched this from the days when there was an abundance of Bible college. I mean, just, there was a different, there was at one time, there was the Bob Jones group, and there was the Hiles group, and then there was the Tennessee Temple group, and there was the Liberty group, and then there was the Trinity group, and then they did all these different groups there, and they all had their own unique distinctives about things, but they were all different camps there. And I want to tell you tonight that rifts and contentions and divisions come because of envies and jealousies. And we have camps in our churches. God forbid we have camps in this church We're following, where people follow personalities. And thank God, you know, churches are blessed with good personalities. Amen? I'm thankful for the personalities we have in our church. I mean, we have some very, very sweet, wonderful Christians in our church. But if we're not very careful that just because of how things, are, things flow and things happen and busyness, that, uh, for instance, I don't fault a college person for having a preference and want to be around Brother Irwin. I don't fault a, 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 a high school person wanting to be around Brother AJ. I don't fault someone in our Cornerstone class wanting to hang around, wanting to having a preference towards Brother Danny or Brother Dave. I mean, we have this all over. I don't fault someone in a higher ground class for, uh, having a preference towards Brother, Brother Just. But well, here's what I want to say. There's nothing wrong with us having an, you know, a certain, certain preference there, but what there is a problem is when we exalt the personality over Jesus Christ. 
And we become, we have a camp mindset in our church. That becomes a problem, okay? And uh, we start going after that person. You know, there's just things that happen with that. And it happens. So let me give you some things here, okay? Most personalities, in fact, everybody, even people in this room, most personalities, especially those who can have influence or can manipulate, like to have a following. That's your nature, my nature. And unless you die to self, you're going to want a following, okay? I mean, you just look at that, okay? Now, watch what happens here. If we're not very careful about our spirit and how we handle things, we can have camps in our Sunday school and camps in our growth groups and camps in our clubs and camps in our services and camps with our ethnicities and our language ministries. Uh, it can happen when men and women have their ministries. It can happen in the life stages groups. Or someone says, I like Pastor so-and-so. I like Pastor Brother so-and-so and all these other things. It happens because of the broad availability of podcasts and social media influence. And let me tell you tonight, if you're following a certain person on a podcast or in social media, you need to be very careful that you're not falling within the range, the mindset of a camp because you're, you're being persuaded by that person. I mean, it's amazing how podcasts and social media has a broader, more, in, more, more if you would, influential uh, uh, impact on our lives and our thinking than we really than we understand there. And we have to be very careful in our church mindset that when we come to church, you're not being persuaded as the preaching of God's word is going on. You're not being persuaded to follow an individual. You're being persuaded to follow God. You're being persuaded to follow the truth of God's word there. And we must be very careful that we don't come with a divisive mindset. So we have personalities, okay? There was divisions and schisms in the church at Corinth. And it had gone on for a long period of time. And it ingrained itself in the church. So let me give you a few things. I say this every now and then, but let me give you a few things like this we have to be careful of. When personalities arise to draw away a following, did you know that deeply embedded in this is things that we see in the Old Testament as well? We see the possibility, the potential of an Absalom mindset, an Absalom standing in the gate, trying to draw away people to himself to steal the hearts of people. I mean, if we're not very careful. And listen, if we find ourselves struggling because we want a following and we want people to like us, we need to die to self to that. Because if we want people to like us and we want people to commend our message, things like that, we need to die to self and realize that's not a good thing. We have to realize that that breeds carnality and, and exudes from us into other people's lives. Did you know that a minister, an individual of the church, does not have the prerogative to plan out its own agendas and things like that? Then to come back and say to the senior pastor, well, I, we, we did this. Is this okay? Really what you're saying is, you know, we want to plan it because we feel like we have a better attitude about that. And when we have that kind of attitude about things, we have to be very careful that we're not taking a ministry down a direction it was never meant to go. That it has a life of its own and doing its own things there. Okay. Why do you see a second thing tonight, very quickly? There are divisions and schisms because of personalities, but you notice something else. Number two, letter B. Not just because of personalities, but there were preferences. Preferences lead to divisions. Now, we all have preferences, but divisions and strife were because of preferences. Now, look what Paul asked this question, and I thought that was, uh, I think how the Holy Spirit wove this together was very, 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 uh, uh, very, very wise of the Holy Spirit of God. He said in verse 13, is Christ divided? Is Christ broken up into many pieces going in different directions? Was Paul crucified for you? That's a great thought. Now, if you're going to follow personalities, did Paul die for your sins? He said, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He said, if you're going to have these followings, he says, and, and, he's, and he's pointing to himself. He's not pointing to Peter, and he's not pointing to Paulos. He's pointing to himself. He says, now when you got baptized, were you baptized in my name? Is there any authority in me? And by the way, that's a, great, that's a great spirit that Paul had. He said, I don't have any authority. I'm just a servant of the living God. And by the way, we have to look at ourselves too. We don't have any authority. We're just servants of the living God. Amen? And so he says, was Paul crucified for you? And all these things. But I want you to notice that from all this, we see where preferences are a reason why they're divisions. Now, let me give you a definition of preferences, okay? A preference is a personal like and dislike. A preference is not a conviction. A preference is not a conviction, okay? For instance, what Bible version we use at Heritage Baptist Church is not a preference, it's a conviction, okay? The blood of Jesus Christ covers all of our sins. That is a Bible doctrine, that's a conviction, that's not a preference, okay? I mean, there's just some things we have to understand tonight that are convictions, but a preference is not a conviction. A preference, we can disagree on preferences, we can have different preferential ideas, okay? We're, we're looking at a, a portion of the church that have to be repainted. 
and we're looking at different colors and so things like that. And so some of us have been talking about the colors there. You know, we're, we're disagreeing on the colors. That's okay. We're not going to split the church and disagreeing on colors. Amen? But there are churches that do things like that. Churches disagree on colors. Now, if you want to paint something an ungodly green, I probably will split on that, okay? Uh, you know, I just, that might be something I might split on, okay? Or if you, want to, you, you ladies want to paint, paint the, the ladies' bathrooms pink, I'm going to split with you on that. that. That might be a problem there, okay? Just to tell you that up front there. But we can have our preferences, all right? Um, preferences are subject to change. Now, today, we like the colors on the outside of the building. Ten years from now, we may want a different color, okay? Uh, there was a time... When people like shag carpets. Now, we're not having shag carpets in Heritage Baptist Church. Amen? amen? Praise God for that. Amen? But that was at a different time and era. Preference is up to Hey, listen. Hey, listen, okay? What time we have our services is a preference. It's not a conviction. Okay? If, if we have our evening service at 530 and somebody else has 6 o'clock, the difference of time doesn't make us different Baptists. That's a preference. Do you understand what I'm saying tonight? That's a preference, okay? Um, if, we, if we find that because of the unfolding of things in our area, that we may, may need to move our Bible classes, let's just say, I'm just saying, I'm not saying we are, but let's say we moved our Bible classes to uh, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and we ran services only Sunday morning. That's a preference. That's not a conviction. That doesn't mean it's make us less of a church. It may be, there may be different dynamics driving. Maybe it, it may be attendance factors. It may be driving factors. It may be, it may be just other things we're dealing with in our community. I'm just saying tonight, we have to understand what preferences are, okay? Uh, we have dr- different dress standards for events. For instance, I, I asked those who are in a leadership capacity that there's a certain dress standard we have for those in leadership capacity. Now, sometimes men come to our church who, who are used to business casual, and they'll, they'll say, Pastor, did, did I dress wrong? I, I feel kind of off. Some people feel that way. They feel like they're out of place and I said well number one okay I, I put a tie on and a jacket on because uh, out of respect to you and I do it for the Lord I do it out of respect to you that doesn't mean necessarily if you're not in a teaching capacity that you have to do but I ask all of our teachers and our preachers here I want them to wear a tie and I want them to wear a jacket because I want them to do it out of respect for the congregation you said well you don't understand Saddleback Sam over down in Southern California he, he, likes, he, he likes to have an open collar shirt well that's Saddleback Sam that's not here at Baptist Church that's a preference for him okay I just have a higher preference. It's okay. It's all right, okay? He wants to have a lower preference. That's his, that's his business, okay? Now, at, at the, the, the preacher asked me on, on Thursday, Friday. He said, now, for the sessions, uh, is, what, what's your dress center? What do you want me to do? I want to follow whatever you do. I said, okay, preacher. I said, I told our men and our ladies they, could have, they can come business casual. And our, well, that means business for men, business casual. They don't have to wear a tie. And if they want to wear a sport jacket, it's fine. And I said, I want you to feel comfortable with that. If you don't feel comfortable, you can wear a tie. You're not going to offend me. If you wear a tie, I'll put a tie on, okay? That's fine. I don't want you to feel offended. Uh, my, my good friend, Pastor Nathan Gross, okay? Now, I, I put him out of fish. He was like a, literally like a fish out of water. Now, he's in, he's in Hawaii. And um, he kind of figured out after a couple years there that wearing a shirt, sleeve, a shirt sleeve white shirt and a tie made him look more like a Mormon than, than someone that was acclimated to the, to, to, to the, to, to the, 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 the island. Of, I'm serious. I'm serious. It did. Okay, and so, you know, he wears an island shirt. He looks fine with it. Most of the preachers there wear island shirts. I'm fine with it. I don't have, I'm not going to, that doesn't make him less of fundamental. He's probably more fundamental Baptist than some of my members here in the church. Okay, I mean, he's just, he's recorded that. Okay, but, okay, he asked me to preach a few years ago on a Sunday morning. I said, well, how do you want me to dress? What do you want me to wear? Well, you can wear a tie. And I said, you sure? He says, yeah, you, you wear a tie, I wear a tie. Well, I wore a tie. And I, and I realized that morning, that probably wasn't the wise thing to do. I should have asked him, what, I should have said, what are you wearing that day? And I'll follow what you wear. Now, if he, if he was going to come in a tank top, I wouldn't have done that, okay? Uh, that wouldn't have done it, okay? That would probably, that would have crossed the line with me there. But I wore a tie, and he wore a tie, and I could tell his fit members were feeling really uncomfortable with him wearing a tie there. And I said, okay, I understand this dynamic. It's a different place. This is his church. I'm not going get, to get involved with that. And so that evening, when he asked me to preach the evening, I took my tie off, okay? I wore a Hawaiian shirt. Can you imagine me preaching a Hawaiian shirt at Heritage Baptist Church? That would be a blessing, amen? You, you would feel so relieved if I did that, amen? Let me say this tonight, okay? Preferences become divisive. Preferences become divisive when we don't draw a line in the sand. A good case in point, the music of a church. Now, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different extremes on that, okay? Now, we have a line that we've put for our church. That's just where we want to be because I've watched this unfold, and, and I just don't want it getting pushed out. If you don't draw a line in the sand, it's going to get pushed, and it's going to get pushed, it's going to get pushed, and next thing you know, you can't bring it back in, okay? Um, preferences become divisive. 
in terms, if, if we don't, if we don't, if we don't have a, a means by which uh, determine that determines how a final decision is made, and so we must be careful that preferences are not a doctrine. Doctrines are non-negotiable. Those are convictions. Okay, remember I said earlier, uh, uh, a service or two back. Okay, we we read the Bible, we find out a doctrinal principle. From that doctrinal principle, we develop a conviction, and from that, from that conviction, we develop the standard and how we live out that doctrine. That's how, that's how we develop standard. We don't choose a standard because of a preference and have no Bible doctrine to back it up. It always starts with a Bible doctrine, a Bible principle, a doctrinal principle, which leads to a conviction, which later on leads to that standard we use. So people divide because of their preferences. Let's not divide over preferences, amen? amen. But letter C, notice this here in verses 13, 14, and 15. This, was, this is a problem. There were schisms because of personalities. There were schisms because of preferences. But there were schisms because of how they evaluated performances. It's sad. The church at Corinth used baptism as a divisive issue. Can I tell you, in churches, it's interesting, so many in evangelism can become a divisive issue. You say, how could that be? Let's go to Philippians chapter one. Paul had to deal with that. Contention regarding the preaching of the gospel. And I'm gonna say something specific to our churches after we read this. <clears throat> Paul said this in Philippians one, verses 14 to 18. And many of the brethren of the Lord waxing confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, just a thought I want to give you. Whenever there, the Paul was imprisoned, whenever we see something in the media that looks like it's very bad, let's pray that it will, it will, it will, help, it will help the spread of the gospel. Many of the brethren became much more bold seeing Paul was in prison, okay? It gave them boldness here. Hey, this coronavirus thing, we ought to pray that it gives us more gospel preaching opportunities, amen? amen. So verse 15, they were much more bold to speak the word without fear, but... Some indeed preach Christ, notice this, even of envy and strife. Some also of goodwill. Some were preaching Jesus out of spite to Paul. Now can I say this tonight? I'm type A in my personality. I love to mix up with people. I'm not afraid of anybody. I love I loved to get with people. I don't care how hard they are or soft they are. I just find that it's a challenge to, to work with people and to realize I've got to just let the Spirit of Christ work through me. I've got to be prayed up enough and Spirit-filled to be able to deal with any personality, not be intimidated or, or to overwhelm a personality. Amen? I mean, there's two extremes. One way you could be intimidated. The other extreme is to, is to overwhelm somebody. Both of those are not good. But we should not as a church where we have one who's very strong about and passionate about confrontational soul winning, that's face-to-face explaining the gospel, and another one who is not as confrontational, who just is more content with giving out tracts and feeling like, you know, that's my thing and, and uh, you know, I want to get a following through that way. You, you know, I, we should not as a church, we should not as a church be divisive or be angry because perhaps the pastor is more confrontational and I as a member am not as confrontational. Listen, God's going to bless his word no matter who we are. God's going to bless his word no matter who we are. We have to not be looking at the personality or looking at the method as much as we are at the seed of the word. It's the seed of the word that saves souls. It's not you or me. It's the seed of the word that saves souls, okay? So Paul said this, somebody preached Christ. Now, I'm not saying here that all we do is track pass too. I'm for track passing there, and there's a place for that. But I'm very strong in, in, because we have the freedom to give the gospel. I'm for confrontational sowing, okay? And some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of what? What's the word? Contention. Contention. Notice this, not sincerely. And by the way, may I add this? If, <coughs> if your methodology, I'm just gonna throw it out, I don't think it's anybody here, but if your methodology is because you don't agree with confrontational soul winning, here's what Paul, Paul's take, the word of God's take on the authority of God's word is, if you're preaching of contention, you're doing out of contention and not sincerely, God cannot bless that. God cannot bless that. He says, one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. They want to prove a point. Yeah, listen, God uses all different kinds of tools and methods to build his church, okay? That's the God, God's ways are not our ways. 
But he says in verse 17, but the other of love, nor that set for the defense of the gospel, what then? Do I choose sides? Do I follow a camp? No. Here's Paul's solution to this. What then? Notwithstanding, every way. I like that. Amen? Every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Now, here, here's how we go as, as fundamentalists. Well, they used Easter eggs. I don't think God could bless that. Oh, what, did you know that that church, that ice cream Sunday, that must be carnal. Oh, did you know, did you know that they did this and they did, you know what? Now, as long as you don't give them alcohol and cigarettes, amen, you know? And you're doing something unethical or something that would cause confusion? Here's Paul's take on that. He says, he said, Notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached, I dare and do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Hey, listen, we can rejoice. We ought to rejoice every time a soul gets saved. Amen. Every time a person gets saved, we ought to rejoice. It doesn't matter how it happened and who, who the conveyor was. Listen, I don't win souls. You don't win. The Holy Spirit wins the souls. Amen? We don't, we, we don't win to do I mean, just he said in every way, we ought, we, ought to, we ought to rejoice. But go back to Paul here. And so there was contention about who baptized who. Now, God help us as our church grows and we see more people saved and we see more increase in baptisms and the staff, the staff men, perhaps I'm going to be at a place with the staff men are going to be doing more of the baptism than me and I'm, and I'm all for that. But if we get to the place, well, I was baptized by Brother Irwin, I was baptized by Brother Justin or Brother AJ, I was baptized by, if we get to that place, we're carnal. That is wrong. That's not biblical, okay? So, I mean, I'm just saying here, Paul said here, look, so Paul had to fix this. He said, now I thank God, he said in verse 14, that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. Lest any of you should say that I had baptized in my own name. Because some of them were trying to put Paul, make Paul look bad. And he said, and then he thought about it, he said, wait a minute, I baptized also the household of Stephanus, but besides them, I know not whether I baptized any. And he said, you know what he's saying here? You guys are making an ordinance of the church a divisive issue. And we need to be careful not to take something that God wants to bless and make it a divisive issue. Now, I'm going to do something Sunday, and I don't want you to get mad at this, okay? I'm thankful that, you know, we, we prayed for a long time. I like the song. Uh, we heard it a few years ago, Behold Our God. It's a very stirring song, and, and I love the theology in it. But I just kind of felt, my wife and I both kind of felt, and I, and I asked her about it because she's an expert in music. I said, what do you think about it? And we both came to the same conclusion. We just felt like, you know, just, you know, it, it was just a little bit too, a lot of the rangers that are out there were a little bit too jumpy. And I just felt like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to send a mixed signal to the congregation. And so we'd been praying, and, and God had led us to, uh, to choose the theme around August of last year, the theme Only God, uh, through, through Bible reading and study and just the leading of the Lord. And then, along with that, we, we found this arrangement that the choirs use, and we thought, man, this is a good arrangement. This will fit exactly where we're at as a church. Not as jumpy, perhaps, as it would be. You say, well, pastor, is there a problem with that? Yeah, there is a problem, because once I let it go, if I don't draw a line in the sand, we keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And next thing you know, five years from now, we're not even the same church we, were, we are today. You have to keep the line of circle. I remind you what my good friend, Dr. Ed Nelson, said many years ago. Let your theology dictate your music, and don't let your music dictate your theology. And by the way, he's 96 years old and still preaching like he was at 20 years of age. He just got honored by Dr. Van Gelderen for his 95th birthday just last year. And he just preached for uh, brother Pastor Dean Miller just a few months ago over at his church over there in Colorado. And here's a man staying strong by the stuff there. Now, I'm going to say this, okay? I might take the chorus and say, well, let's, let's sing that chorus today together because as, as together, I believe I want to lead the congregation in just exalting our God. And you should not be offended by, by saying, behold our God, because that's scriptural. It's found in Isaiah chapter 40. You ought to behold your God, amen? And it's okay with something like that. We might take chorus. By the way, some of our good songs we have, I like taking some of the chorus out of our hymnal. But every now and then we take something like that, as long as we don't cross the line, we should not say, well, we're starting to sound like the, the new evangelicals. We're not sounding like the new evangelicals, and we're not going that way. In fact, I'll tell you, most new evangelicals are not very comfortable with me or with around this church because that they, they just read this. That's, and I don't say it in a bad way. They're just not comfortable because that's what they didn't come out. They didn't come out of that. I'm just telling you that today, okay? I would say today there's a distinct about but we need to have a good spirit about that. So Paul said they, they, they were dividing because of performances. 
Now, let me just say this tonight, and I'm almost done. When it comes to performance, whatever we do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give God the glory. Honor God, okay? Please God in what we do there, okay? Let's not change things to try to get with, the, get with the, what's going on with the movement there. Let's just keep things where, where it's biblical, it's, it's right with, with, for Christ. Back in 17, the 1750s, the British and, and French had, you know, were having major battles, and the battles extended itself over, to the, over in Canada. And Admiral Phipps was the commander of the British fleet. He was told, he was given specific orders by the king to anchor outside of Quebec, Canada. They said, we want you to anchor there, and you're to stay there until the rest of the British land forces arrive. And then when they arrive, you're to support them. You're to aim your cannons there at specific targets and aim them and shoot them when the land forces come. Well, Admiral Phipps was a very impatient man. He was a, he was a leader, and he was a very type A person. He was a very impatient man. And he happened to notice there was a, there was a, uh, you know, there was a large Catholic influence in Quebec that came over from France. And, and he noticed that these statues of, of saints, these designated saints that they had there... And so he got, just got a little irritated looking at all those things, and he wasn't much of a believer himself. And so he, he told his men, he says, you know, while we're waiting, what I'd like you to do is aim those cannons at those statues and blow those statues away. And started shooting away those cannonballs, and they were blown away by all these, 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 these statues, and they had an abundance of statues, saints there. Well, finally, the British, the British land forces came, and they were supposed to do battle, and uh, they said, okay, let's get ready. Check with Admiral Phipps if, he re- if he's ready to shoot. And they, nobody knew how many rounds they, they shot off. But as they did so, word got back to land force. We got to hold up making these advances because we ran out of ammunition. They said, how'd you run out of ammunition? And one of the soldiers said he ran out of ammunition because he, he spent up all his ammunition shooting at the saints. And I say this tonight, sometimes if we're not very careful, we can use up all of our godly energy and all of the best that we have in shooting at one another instead of shooting at the devil. We come with a, with a chip on our shoulder and we get bent out of shape or we have misunderstandings and we're divisive. And a divisive spirit does not please God nor does it help a church. Now thank God we don't have it here but there's a propensity it could be here and it, we want to just get rid of it right now and, and die, let it die to self and let Jesus be exalted. Amen? Now tonight as we close what you notice is we saw a congregation. A congregation's a fellowship. A congregation's a family. We've seen the complaint. Paul said there are contentions among you. I said it's ungodly and it's ungainful. We see the cause, the cause for, for these contentions and so forth. They're because of preferences, they're because of personalities, and they're because of uh, the, the, wrong, the wrong view of performances. Now as we close, would you go back to verse 10 and we're done. Would you notice a command? And the command is given by Paul with gentleness yet firmness, with compassion and yet with conviction. He says, now I beseech you, brethren. He's going to them as family. Now, he's not there physically, but he's writing to them, and they can feel the tone of Paul's, Paul, Paul's voice. Now, I beseech you, I beg you, I appeal to you. I beseech you, brethren, notice this, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when he said that, they knew that this was very serious. He said that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Now let me say very quickly because we need to close. Number one, he says, speak the same thing. In other words, you know, it's like conversation between husbands and wives and parents and children. Don't be cryptic in your message. Don't be hidden in, your, in, your, in what you're trying to get across. Speak the same thing. Now as a Baptist church, we have a unique way of saying things. Speak the same thing. Don't be cryptic. Don't be hidden. Don't be malicious. Speak the same thing. Amen? Speak in love. Amen? He says, speak the same thing. Be the same on doctrine. Be the same about our philosophy ministry. Speak the same thing. Then he said, this is very strong. He says, and that there be no, and underline, circle the word no, no divisions among you. Now, the word division is a different word than the word contentions. The word division is the word schisma. We get our word schisms, a rift. You know where that word comes from? In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks about a garment being rendered apart, the tearing of a garment. Don't, don't break the body. Don't rip the body, say. There be no divisions. Don't cause, where there's a rift, there's a, where there, where there's a rift, there, there's, there's damage there. It's the same word that's used describing uh, the disciples mending the nets when Jesus came. They were fixing broken nets. 
It's the same word that's used in Hebrews 11.3 where it says the worlds were framed by the word of God. It's the same word that's used in Hebrews 13.21, make you perfect. In other words, he's saying here, he's telling us here, we need to be careful that we, that we speak the same thing, no division. Then notice he says here, then that we be perfectly joined together. Now, that has the idea of fixing a broken bone. Same word that's used in Galatians 6.1. To restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. It's fixing a broken bone. Same idea as I just mentioned earlier. Mending broken necks. It's fixing something that's broken. He said that you be perfectly joined together. He says, okay, now there's a rift. Get it fixed. He gets set, it in mo- set, it, set the fractured bone in place for healing. Now listen tonight as we close. The Bible says this. Only by pride cometh contention. Hatred stirreth up strife. A wrathful man stirreth up strife. Cast out the scorner and contention shall cease. So the question is asked as we close. Well, what's the difference between biblical separation and what's being talked about here and unbiblical divisiveness? What's the difference? Okay, well, uh, here, here, let me read this to you in Romans 16, verses 17 18. Because there is a difference between biblical separation and unbiblical div- division. He said in Romans 16, verse 17 18, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause what? Division. And offenses divisive people, divisive because of doctrine, divisive because of personality. He says, mark them. Mark them which cause division on offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of simple. Everything I said about personalities and about preferences and about about, about performances, that's all right there. So, we close by understanding we must have a spirit of like-mindedness. And I want you to read with me Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Would you look there, please? Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4. And I'd like you to read that out loud with me together. Would you do that with me, please? Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. All together, please. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort, read with me, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. We need to have the mind of Christ. Oswald Chambers said this, when you have learned to walk in the light of the Lord, bitterness and contention are impossible. Fellowship is vertical and horizontal. If our fellowship horizontally with our brothers and sisters is divided and contentious, it's most likely indicative that our fellowship vertically with our Father and and, and Jesus Christ is not where it needs to be. We must evaluate our fellowship, our koinonia, our communion with the Lord. Is it right with him? Now, I don't believe it's here, but we want to have preventative medicine. You know, we want to make sure we have things in place that, 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 that do not allow for division. We don't want to have a divisive spirit in the church. There's a lot of different things. You know, you're going to hear things. The church grows. You hear things. And if you're not very careful, you're going to hear things, and you're going to become very divisive about them. You're going to hear, well, well, you know, there must be something bad there. You should always decide among, in your heart, you're not going to listen to gossip or things that lead to envy and jealousy. You're going to, lead, you're going to listen to those things that promote the welfare of the body of Christ so that it's one in Jesus Christ and that God is glorified. Let's strive together as a church body to have a united front, a united church, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace.